Hey, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today we're going to explore John's telling of Jesus on the cross. Hey, welcome back everyone. My name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia. So glad that you're hanging out with us today. Um, like I said at the top of this video, we're going to be exploring John's telling of Jesus on the cross. And there's a few things that John really wants to get across. And they may be things that we in the 21st century might miss because we don't understand first century culture. And so we're going to take a journey together, but to really um, set the scene, to set the understanding, the context of this moment, we do need to understand some things about the cross itself. The cross is a, it was a barbaric, torturous way of execution. Um, to bear one's own cross was to carry the cross beam uh, through the city from the place of judgment and then you're, you had to bring it out to the place of being executed. And so this idea of the, you know, we often have this picture of a cross, like a center beam and a cross beam uh, being the entire thing that they carried. It would have just been the cross beam that they carried. But I want you to consider that there was a scourging, the worst of the scourgings, uh, where they were whipped. They're whipped with uh, these cat of nine tails that had pieces of bone and whatever shards in it woven through it. And so these whippings would uh, cause there to be severe lacerations of the back and the sides and the ribs. And so I want you to just consider that this is a significant, uh, a significantly torturous way to be executed. Um, when you arrived at the site of the crucifixion, you were nailed to that cross beam. And so that cross beam you were nailed to. And then typically the vertical would have already been put up. And so you'd be hoisted up and then attached by that cross beam to the vertical beam. And you would hang there. Um, your feet would then be nailed to the vertical beam. And so what this did is this allowed you to lift yourself up in a way that you could take a breath, that you could breathe. Uh, many times they would actually put also a, a little seat, like a 90 degree little seat would be nailed just right behind you so that you could sort of kind of posture yourself where you could kind of get a breath and then relieve yourself on that, on that seat. But it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a thing for comfort. It was a thing to prolong the suffering of dying on the cross. The cross was brutal. It was a brutal form of execution. Now, death on the cross was actually of asphyxiation. You would die because you could no longer lift yourself up in order to expand your lungs and take in oxygen, take in breath. And so ultimately, you would die from lack of oxygen to your body and to your brain. Cicero, 
uh, the Roman statesman and order of the first century, calls it, and I quote, the most cruel and horrifying death. Tacitus, a Roman historian of the first and second century, called it a despicable death. But if we don't understand the context, if we don't fully appreciate the cross and what the cross was as an instrument of execution, suffering, and death, then we can't maybe fully appreciate the activity of Jesus hanging on the cross. If we don't understand the cross, we can't fully appreciate the payment that he made for our sin, to redeem us from our sin. So, so with this understanding, let's jump into John's telling of this moment as Jesus goes to the cross. And today I want to explore um, two seemingly innocuous items that carry more meaning than maybe we think. And to understand that, we need to understand the first century and the culture and the context of that moment. And, and then I want to finish with some insight in the heart of Jesus towards others as he's hanging on this cross. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 19. We're going to be starting at verse 17. John 19, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to get one, you'd like to explore faith and Christianity and what this is all about, uh, can I invite you to visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible. Uh, there's links there to get a digital Bible right away. If you live in the Powell River region and you fill out the form, we would love to get a physical Bible to you, our gift to you. So here we go. John 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his cross. To the, place called, to the place called the place of a skull, which in, Ar in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, we've been dealing with the power struggle between Pilate and these religious rulers and leaders. There's been this kind of dichotomy of power, um, and we know that Pilate has made in the past, he's made some significant missteps. Uh, if you want to kind of get into that, you can go back to our Good Friday service. And we talked about Pilate and a little bit of his history with the Jewish people as governor over Judea. Um, and so in this moment, he does, he needs to be politically careful in how he deals with things. And so you can see the political power struggle that they had as they decided Jesus' fate. And here, Pilate does something that he knows will get under the skin of these religious rulers. Um, he's trying to get in this moment the last word, so to speak. And so he's written this sign, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You know, have you ever wanted to get in the last word or the last jab? And this is basically what Pilate, he can't help himself. 
He is antagonizing these religious rulers with this act. There's nothing altruistic about it. Um, Pilate is not a believer in any stretch of the imagination at this point. You know, there, there are, um, I didn't find many scholars that actually believe that, that Pilate became a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In fact, later on in Pilate's life, we're going to see at the end of his reign, uh, he had made some major missteps. And there's actually a moment of genocide, a moment of um, massacre at a town that he, uh, he calls for. And that's actually what ends his rule in Judea. So his motivation is not altruistic. His motivation is to get in the last word, to politically position himself uh, over the religious rulers of the time. But even if the motivation was off, the messaging certainly wasn't. You know, last week we spoke to three ironies that we saw in Jesus' trial. And this is kind of a fourth and final irony that we see presented. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the words used here are not innocuous. They are very intentional. Nazareth was, was not a place that produced anything significant. It was a lowly Place. In fact, at the beginning of this gospel, we see this interaction between Philip and Nathaniel. And in, in John 1, 45 to 46, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him, speaking of Jesus, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Pilate knew that associating this Jesus to Nazareth would have been embarrassing to the Jewish people. So this idea that the king of the Jews was coming out of this lowly place, Nazareth, that's why he uses this word choice. He knows it's going to get under their skin. It's his final jab. It's his last word as they're sparring back and forth in the political arena. And as we explored yesterday, you know, or, or last week, if you disparage a truth, it doesn't make it any less true. And this moment makes me think of uh, Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's the deal, friends. Maybe you feel like you're nobody. You're nobody coming from nothing, from an obscure place with limited things to offer. Um, when it comes to the kingdom mindset, when it comes to God looking for willing and able people, this is, this is you got perfect qualifications. Jesus didn't despise his origin story. He didn't despise where he came from. He simply came and was on mission and he changed the world. He calls us to change a small part of the world in his name as well. And so though Pilate was trying to be ironic and facetious in this moment, really what he wrote here was true. 
And though the Jews were embarrassed by this sign, declaring Jesus as king of the Jews, but not just Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, this nobody, nothing place. It tells us and it speaks to the potential that God has given each and every one of us. Even when we come from nothing, God, through Jesus, can redeem us and cause us to make and change parts of our world that we never would have expected. But, but I think John wants to, to see more here. He wants us to see a little bit more as we meditate on this implication of this sign that was placed over Jesus' head. It was written in three languages, in Greek, in Aramaic, and in Latin. And these are the three primary languages spoken of the day in the first century. And so Pilate wanted everyone to have access to its meaning. He wanted everyone walking by, no matter where you came from, to understand what it said. And I can't help but appreciate the symbolism that this offers us, right? This alluding to the reality that Jesus was hanging on that cross, not just for the sake of the Jews, but for the world as well. And so as Pilate is trying to be ironic and satirical and facetious, it actually speaks to a deeper truth. That indeed Jesus was hanging there for the world, accessible to the world. Later at the time of his ascension into heaven, Jesus would command his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And though Pilate meant this, you know, this sign uh, as a last word in a power struggle, John takes the time to record this account with these details because I think he saw the profound implications that they carried. He goes on in writing in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Now, it was a standard practice that the executioners of prisoners would be given the rights to the clothing of the sentenced prisoner. And so they divided up Jesus' clothing among them until they got to his tunic. And it says the tunic was woven of one piece, and so it had no seam. So to divide this tunic up between them would, would mean they would have had to destroy the garment. And so instead of destroying this one-piece garment, they cast lots for it. And it's kind of obvious that John is trying to make some correlations here. And, and the most obvious one, and the one that he brings us attention to, is he, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 18. And, and I want to read it, and, and we're going to read what he quoted, but we're going to go back a couple verses because I think it's so interesting to kind of hear um, kind of how profound and how uncanny this is, this, this moment that was written um, many years before. So verse 16 of Psalm 22, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Verse 18. 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, when we read the Bible today, sometimes there's maybe a misnomer. There's a a misunderstanding of what's going on because we read the Bible and we kind of at times maybe treat it as a singular book, as one book we read from front to back. But that's not really what the Bible is. The Bible is a library. It's a collection of books that have been written over many, many centuries, over thousands of years, in fact. And so this moment in Psalms, in, in Psalm 22, was that actually written 1,000 B.C., around 1,000 B.C.? So this is 1,000 years before this moment on the cross. Now, why is that so significant? Well, at that time, a crucifixion as a form of execution hadn't even been invented yet. It wasn't invented until the Persians. And so the Persians passed that on, and it, the Romans took that on later in the first century in this moment. But what's so significant about this? Notice the description of the hands and the feet being nailed and pierced, consistent with crucifixion, something that had not even been invented yet when this was written. And then, then of course, John is drawing our attention to the dividing of the garments and the casting of lots for the garments. But I think perhaps John is actually attempting a greater nuance than just that here. Because he gives a description of the tunic. He says it was a woven one-piece article of clothing. Now, why does, why does that matter? Why does that description matter? Well, William Barclay writes this. Jesus' tunic is described as being without seam, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That is the precise description of the linen tunic which the high priest wore. Let us remember that the function of the priest was to be the liaison between God and his people. The Latin for priest is pontifex, which means bridge builder. And the priest was to build a bridge between God and his people. No one ever did that as Jesus did. He is the perfect high priest through whom men and women come to God. So here we have, like in this moment, in the first century, when the high priestly role was rife with corruption, an office that no longer was building bridges to God for the people, but was rather putting up barriers as they sought to maintain their position and power. Right? And in this moment, Jesus, the perfect high priest, he's hanging on a cross building a permanent bridge for us to the Father God. This is what he's doing. He's giving us a picture of it, what it is to be the perfect high priest. If you want to learn more about Jesus as high priest, I encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is basically an argument to Jesus' priesthood. But this becomes the calling for each and every one of us as well. By extension, we who have been called by Jesus and have given our lives to Jesus are now the priesthood of all believers. We are called to be bridge builders between man and God. That, that causes us to ask the question, does the way I live my life build bridges or does it put up barriers to the gospel? Does, does the way that I interact with people 
build bridges or put up barriers to the gospel. Friends, may we be bridge builders as Jesus was, as Jesus hung on that cross, the perfect high priest, building a permanent bridge between us and God. Verse 24 goes on, So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know, there was a second sort of detail to the first century Jewish culture that may, may or may not, we're speculating here, but it's kind of fun to speculate sometimes. But it may or may not have played a role into this moment of, of transition. Jesus is on the cross. His clothing is being um, taken by these executioners. And they're casting lots for his tunic. And in that moment, John transitions from all of this going on to this very intimate personal moment. So I think it's interesting to consider that in the first century, many times... Sons would have their mothers weave them a tunic. It was not unknown for mothers to weave the tunic for their sons as they go out into their lives, into their vocation. Perhaps this tunic, this tunic that they're casting lots for in this moment, was one that his mother had made for him as he stepped into his first public ministry about three and a half years before this moment. And perhaps, as he witnesses the lots being cast for this tunic of his, his mind turns to his mother, who is there at the foot of the cross. And there's this moment where he understands there's no social service for his mom. Uh, most scholars believe by this time, Joseph, his father, had passed away and his mom was on her own. And as a woman in the first century, you needed someone to take care of you. You needed, there was no uh, government programming that was going to take care of you. It was very community orientated. It was very uh, within the family. And so in this moment, he wants to make sure that his mom is going to be taken care of. So he commissions John, the writer of this gospel, the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He commissions John to take care of his mother. And I just wonder, can you see the intimacy of this moment, the care that Jesus takes to make sure that his mother is going to be cared for? At the beginning of this message, I, I said you need to understand the cruelty and the suffering and the, the torture of the cross to really appreciate what is going on here. And, and this is kind of one of these moments. Jesus is dying. He has to struggle for every breath. He has to lift himself up to fill his lungs, lift himself up on those nails in his feet and in his hands. And in this moment, in his suffering, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his mother and making sure that she'll be cared for. You know, friends, Jesus was never once a victim. He was never once a victim. And I think that there's a lesson in here for us because Guys, life is hard. 
You know, we spent the last two years exploring just a taste of what could happen if everything goes sideways for us. Life is hard. But I fear that our suffering sometimes helps us justify turning inward. Our suffering can, can cause us to think more about ourselves than we think about the people around us. And here's the problem. When we turn inward, we can very easily adopt like a victim mentality. The suffering of life gives us license to turn away from those that are suffering around us and to focus on ourselves. And I think this is a cultural shift that has been happening over the last little while. But I think that this season of COVID has really exacerbated this thing. A society that has little capacity for the suffering of, of others, but has used their own suffering to justify an inward, insular focus. And it's time that we look at Jesus in this moment. A man, the Messiah, suffering the greatest of suffering, and yet in his suffering, he turns his eyes away from himself, and he looks to see that his mother is being taken care of. A mother who is standing at the foot of the cross, watching her son's life drain away, who is walking through her own suffering in that moment. This is the gospel. This is what it is to be a priest this is what it is to be a bridge builder. There was a, a pivotal moment in the life of Mother Teresa and her mother. Uh, Biography.com, as I was kind of reading through kind of her biography, it says this. In the aftermath of her father's death, Agnes, Mother Teresa, became extraordinarily close to her mother a pious and compassionate woman who, was who had instilled in her daughter a deep commitment to charity. Although by no means wealthy, Drana extended an open invitation to the city's destitute to dine with her family. My child, never eat a single mouthful unless you are sharing it with others, she counseled her daughter. When Agnes asked who the people eating with them were, her mother uniformly responded, some of them are our relations, but all of them are our people. <laughs> of course, Mother Teresa would go on to the places of greatest suffering in all of India, and she'd spend her life doing just that, building bridges to the destitute of the world on behalf of the gospel experiencing the gospel and saying yes to Jesus means your life is no longer yours. You've been bought at a price. We no longer have the luxury of looking out for ourselves. We no longer have the right to be victims of the suffering in this world because we've been bought at a price. Jesus suffered to give us life. And despite our own suffering, we're called to walk into the suffering of others around us. This is what it is to pick up our cross daily and to follow Jesus. So friends, maybe you feel like you don't have much to offer. That's okay. Remember, Jesus was from Nazareth. He was from Nazareth. And, and you might think that your life is in too much turmoil and there's too much suffering and brokenness and hurt and pain in your life. 
That's okay. Jesus was hanging on a cross and he was turning his eyes outwards to the others around him, making sure that they were taken care of. Friends, the Spirit of God, if we allow, if we make room for him, he will empower us to walk in these ways as Jesus walked. As Jesus revealed what the priesthood, the high priest, should look like and did look like in himself, he calls us into the priesthood of all believers. The Spirit empowers us to not be victims of the suffering of this world, but to be empowered that the life, no matter the circumstances around us, that life is in us and goes before us and undergirds us. And that is the life that we speak of. That's the good news that we communicate to the world around us, empowered by the Spirit. So it's time that the church stop looking inward. It's time that the Christian in the West stop looking inward. I know life is hard. I get it. I'm living a hard life too. <laughs> but we need to stop looking inward, even in our suffering. We need to begin to look at those around us and build bridges for the sake of the gospel, because that's the good news. That's what saves. So let's turn our eyes to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that Jesus, you came from humble beginnings. Lord, though you were God, you came as a baby, helpless. Lord, you came and you grew up in Nazareth, this nothing, nobody, backwoods place. <laughs> And Lord, you came from that, that obscurity and you changed the world because Lord, you were on mission because your eyes were set on the mission before you, that your heart was set in love for the people around you. And so Lord God, I thank you that even as you hung on that cross, Lord, in your suffering, Lord, you didn't turn inward. You, you didn't uh, declare woe is me. And Lord, no, you looked outward. You, you stayed focused on the mission set before you. Lord God, even in your pain, even in your darkest moment, Lord God, you endured it for the sake of others. Lord, may we, as we live in this world, as we walk through the hurt and the pain that's around us, Lord, may we not become insular and inward focused, Lord, but would you keep our hearts soft? Would you keep our eyes out that we might see those around us that so desperately need the good news of the gospel? Lord, would you call us as high priests, as priests, the priesthood of all believers, that, Lord, we would be bridge builders to the gospel in our day, in our time, in our context. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us today and stick around for a few announcements, but God bless you.